Mike steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. East Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Under Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Nucky spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Who in the blue hell are you? You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. you didn't have 254 yards of total offense. And certainly I can think of 20 games off the top of my head where they didn't score 31 points. And it was amazing to see how that game played out because early on it was like, oh, this is ETSU's just got the stranglehold on them. And defense is being defense, right, forcing turnovers. I know ETSU didn't capitalize on the first one. But then Robinson makes the play in the big interception. I did look up because Coach hammered me after the game about has there ever been a time where there's been two 90-yard returns with no touchdowns? The answer is no, because that actually wasn't that hard to look up because we have a longest play right. list in the media in the media guys, which was good. And then he immediately this morning asked me if I knew the answer, and then can I look up everybody in America? And I'm like, Coach, there's no way to look that up. <laughs> I appreciate where your head's at, but there's no way to look that up. But that being said, right before half, you're thinking 17-3 ETSU rolling and then Samford got the touchdown right before half and then here's where I think the light bulb went off for Samford I've watched a lot of their games obviously over the years and watched the last two games they had played watched a little bit of the first one but they're big and kind of personnel changes even though they play fast and what they discovered in the first half was if we don't change personnel the other team doesn't have time to change personnel. We saw ETSU have guys running on and off the field and eventually scrapping that, and whoever started the series had to stay on. And I think give credit to Chris Hatcher for that because I thought that was genius on their end. And then the whole third quarter was all about Samford and maybe the first drive of the fourth quarter. Oh, let me take it back. I guess ETSU came out of the gates, third quarter, best drive, straight down the field, got a touchdown, and you're thinking, okay, they settled down. But then all of a sudden – Sanford makes the change at the end of the first half. They start scoring. ETSU has three possessions of four plays, three plays, three plays. And with the defense playing the way they were, struggling. And then something that we know Coach Sanders always wants to do is get a play out of special teams. And finally, Jacob Sailors hits the, the two big plays. And there were so many swings of momentum. I don't even know where to start, whether it's early in the game, third quarter, fourth quarter, the long drivers, a lot to cover. Um, so I'm not sure 
how you saw this playing out or how you want to cover this today, or I can just keep rambling. But no, it's tough. <laughs> I don't know where to – because Sailors had the two big returns. They had the 90-yard drive. They forced the one point uh, or the one punt, and it just – I don't know. I, I don't know where to go. It's, it was – if you follow ETSU football since 2018, they invent new ways for games to end, right? I mean – I could tell you 2015, 16, 17 about how every game was going to play out. At a certain time, if they played good teams, you know, by the third quarter, the good team started to pull away, ETSU loses 17, 21 points. And you could about book that. Or if they were winning, they were able to hold the lead in the third quarter. Um, Kennesaw State and, you know, Sanford and some others in Western Carolina. I mean, you, could, you know, if they're leading going into the fourth quarter, they had a shot to win. But at halftime, if things went right, there was a script for winning and losing. It's pretty simple. If you follow teams, there's a script for winning and losing. For this team in 2018, it was no script. Everything was flipped. 2019 was the same thing. It just went the other way. Last year was a little bit different. There were some traditional wins in there. But this team is just 2018. If you like not knowing what's going to happen in a game, no matter how it looks like it's going early or late, Watch the box. It is tough because we were talking even a couple minutes ago before we came out here about the midweek minute, right? Social media feature we do, ETSU Athletics, where you highlight a call of the week. And I threw out a couple of ideas, and then you threw out a couple of ideas, and then we realized there were like ten more ideas that we could do because there were just so many ups and downs and twists and turns. I don't want to rain on Randy Sanders' parade because I love that he actually followed up with you on this. He's talking about, obviously, the Tyree interception against Sanford, and he's talking about Crondolins' interception against Vanderbilt. Technically, that Crondolins interception won't go down as anything more than an 80-yard return because of the penalty. It got, it got changed. It's actually a 95-yard because the uh, 15-yard penalty. So he got credit. They just changed that. But he got okay, credit. I was going to say because the box score right. still says 80. It, it, it does, yes, we had to send that because that was actually, again, shocking. Vandy doesn't know how to do stats right because just like Quay Holmes had the run and then the penalty, like you get credit for the run and then the penalty takes off okay. of it. So it should have been a 95-yard return. And so I believe, because we sent uh, we sent that out early last week. Now, I don't mean Vandy has changed it yet, or it's going, but that's how it's supposed to go. Okay. Currently, it's an 80-yard return. So I hope that Randy Sanders gets his way, because obviously you and me both believe that that should have been a touchdown, go the whole distance, absurd penalty for nothing that happened. That somehow it, was called on Tyree Robinson. Exactly. That we still haven't found out what, the, what he did. Correct. It should be a video of him, like, the entire play, and nothing so it should be uh, 90 plus yards and that is a great stat and I love that coach Sanders came with the post game let me ask you a question about a stat Jay you know you're always lobbing him and he comes back at you uh most points in league play before this win 55 48 was against Western Carolina right but that took triple overtime it was 45 43 the most points in regulation in a league game was 38 versus Mercer 38 to 33 in that Quay Holmes record-breaking uh, final SoCon game of the year in 2019. And I believe the most since football had been back, at least that's what I've been saying time and time again, was getting shorter when it was 48-10, to 10, but they're NAIA. So on a number of different fronts, scoring 48 in regulation and then 55 in overtime is record-breaking in its own right for ETICU. In segment two, by the way, this is how the show is going to go today. In segment two, we're going to talk about some goods and bads, some ETSU in the national rankings, and some ETSU in their own rankings of, unfortunately, futility. You're going to play the optimist, or I should say pessimist in this case, which is strange. Correct. I'm going to play the optimist. Correct. Which, again, very reversals. Yeah. Uh, And then after that, we're going to talk some SoCon recap and bowl predictions recap. Where I was hoping to start, 
and we're like 10 minutes into the show already, I know. Okay. But I was going to ask you when, and this is a couple of different prongs to this question, you can take whichever one you like, because they're essentially the same question, just phrased different ways. When did you know that this game wasn't going to be easy? And your question may very well be walking into the stadium before the game started. And then, when did you know the Bucks would have a game on their hands for the entire duration? Or when did you know that they were going to be in the game for the entire duration? And I phrase it those two ways because in one scenario you're thinking, oh, well, they're going to be in the game. Okay, that means that they're coming from behind and they're not in a fortuitous position. And the other way, you're almost thinking they're playing from ahead. Bottom line, what was the biggest moment of the day? When did you feel the biggest swing happened? Uh, any different way you want to attack this? Because I have my answer, and it's the first Jacob Saylor's kick return. And then the fact that they kicked him to him a second time, when they know how good of a player he is, how much he can game break in a number of different facets of the game. Uh, couldn't believe they did that. Uh, Sanford, I think, had a number of different missteps going down the stretch. But I think it was Jacob Steelers first kicker turn. It was a nine-point game, right? I saw a couple Buck fans on Twitter say, oh, here we go, just like you're talking about. This is the same old script. We've seen it time and again. This is how it goes. We have no chance. And Sailors brings the kick back. We were in the short field, get a touchdown. That, to me, was when I knew that they were not going away and were not going to fold, like, some more immature or uh, teams that I think are battle-tested may have. The big thing for me was when Sanford went against everything Sanford stands for, and they punted on fourth and three from, I think, the 38. I think they were on ETSU's 38-yard line. And it was ETSU had just scored after the first Jacob Sailor's kick return. And so Sanford was up, and, you know, just not even full one score. So a touchdown like ETSU got would take the lead. Because uh, before, I think they went for two. But... They end up punting. And in fairness, I'm sure Coach Hatcher is going with, this is something I normally don't do, but they've not gone the full length of the field the entire game. They certainly haven't gone 90 yards. I think the best drive was the start of the third quarter uh, when he went down previous to that. But all the other drives, if you look, short drives. I mean, they really haven't had long, sustained drives. So pin them to the 10. Porcello did a great job. He Spun it at the eight. He got a little bit of a bad bounce, an ETSU favorable bounce, and they got the extra two yards, and it's 90 yards. Then they get ETSU in the third and eight on their end of the field. And then Isaiah Wilson, who, again, is not your typical slot receiver, runs by cover three, by the way. I've watched that two or three times. Like, I thought he split cover two, but watching it again, they tried to disguise Chris Edmonds who's the very talented intercepting guy, but he's more like their nickel safety. They don't really do a nickel corner. They do like a nickel safety. And he's supposed to cover the middle third of the field, and he kind of started to jog early, I guess assuming maybe Wilson's going to break off the route and try to get seven, ten yards, get the first, right? Which you could, you know, most teams, that's what you're trying to do, right? You need eight yards, and you only don't throw it 65 yards for a touchdown. And so... He kind of lollygagged to the middle, and all of a sudden, he kind of turned his head. It was like, oh, boy. And by that time, Wilson had a step or two on him. Give Rydell credit. He saw Wilson had that step, realized the two the two safeties that were on the hashes were playing more going towards leverage outside the hashes, throws it down the middle, throws a strike because you can't lob it up that much. And then Wilson does the get-off-me-stiff arm and gets into the end zone. 
And I think, to me, that that right there for a couple reasons. One, Sanford didn't do what they normally do, you know, which is go for it, you know, offense, 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 try to play defense. And, again, statistically speaking, they probably made the right call. If I was Coach Hatcher, I believe I said on air, I know they want to play offense, but it's probably smart to make ETSU go length of the field. We have been waiting as ETSU fans and ETSU Nation since 2018 for a quarterback to make a play. Since Austin Herrick's been gone, we have been waiting for the quarterback to win a game, to make a play. It didn't happen in 2019 with like seven different quarterbacks. It happened, I guess, last year against Sanford, you could say. They, they, you know, Rodell hit Julian Lane Price and he scored. But that was it for the whole season. That was it. And and, and he lost starting job. I mean, so you you didn't leave the end of the season going, I feel good about a quarterback making a play. No. And then he throws the strike down the field, and he'd already thrown a, a beautiful ball, 41-yard touchdown pass, I think it was, um, in the first half to Will Huzzy. But that sort of sequence, maybe not a play, but that sequence right there, I kind of had a feeling at that point. Now, again, there was some more ebbs and flows in the game, but at that point, I think I had firmly believed ETSU was probably going to win the game. So let's go over it again, just for those that, obviously, if you're listening to the show, I'm sure you saw the game. If not, you could have listened to the Saturday at 6 that we put up that was like 15 minutes long. It was more than two and a half times the amount that it should be, but it was just way too much uh, to not – have it be 15 minutes long, so you can listen to that, and I'm sure you've read recaps, box scores, saw the news, whatever, but it's the game in the fourth quarter, Sanford scores to make it 33-24, then you have the 71-yard kick return for Sailors, get it down to 28, fucking your offense, how it was hitting on all cylinders that day, going to score, they did, then you have Sanford with uh, one first down, and then uh, essentially a three and out after that, ETSU gets the ball back, and they score on that long completion to Wilson, 65 yards. Then Sanford comes right back, and it's 41-38 after they get the two as they drive down the field 78 yards for the touchdown. And then they kick to Sailors again, and he brings it out to midfield, and it's another short field for the Bucks. And then Quay Holmes busts off a 41-yard run. And by the way, you and me both kind of thought coming into the season, just not sure that Quay Holmes is going to be able to get there to 4,000 yards past Brandon Walker, and all of a sudden, you know, he keeps putting up like 160 a week, and it's looking more and more realistic to break the all-time rushing record this year. And, of course, remember he has another year next year, if he'll be back or not, totally up in the air. But uh, this year it looks like he could get there all of a sudden, and breaking off those 41-yard runs is part of the reason why. And so ETSU scores in, what, uh, four plays. And then Sanford comes back and gets a score, and you kind of wondered with how the game was going if 56 seconds was too much time. And I think in most years, most situations, most days, it would not have been. But you give Tyler Idell the ball on his best day of his career, maybe the best football day of his life, and it was pretty easy, quite honestly. And we know Sanford's defense isn't good. Like, let's be honest, the – Strength outside of offense for them is their special teams. We went through it on Thursday's show. Their kick coverage was tops in the league. And so maybe just Chris Hatcher liked what he saw from that unit in their first few games and said, I'm going to trust you. Jacob Saylors did it once. I'm going to roll the dice and say he can't do it again. Obviously a major miscalculation. And, again, it's because of who is back there. And this is where I want to give Randy Sanders credit. He always preaches that you want to put your playmakers out in those situations where – 
they can make plays, and it doesn't matter if it's offense, defense, or special teams. And what happened on Saturday was perfect evidence of why that should be the case across the board, because Jacob Saylor's probably doesn't get the amount of touches that you'd like him to get on a week-by-week basis if you're this coaching staff, just because you have Quay Holmes, right, who averaged seven yards a carry. And by the way, as we're going to go over national rankings, is we have the yards per carry king, Jacob Saylor's on this team, but Quay Holmes is actually nationally ranked in yards per carry right now. So you have Holmes, who carries the ball 24 times. You have Saylor's only gets nine carries, right? Doesn't catch the ball on Saturday. So how can you find ways to get him in situations where he can affect the game? And there it was. Two of the biggest plays of the day because, yes, Stanford defense is not good. But you're absolutely right. There were only a couple of times on Saturday where ETSU was able to go the length of the field at the outset of the third quarter and then on that big drive that you talked about where Stanford almost seemed to, like, dared the Bucs to show them that they could do it. And and I don't totally blame Chris Hatcher for that thought process. Uh, Anyway, there's a lot that went into this victory. And, of course, then you go to overtime – go down the field, get the field goal, go to overtime, and the rest is history. Quay Holmes, his second touchdown of the day. Um, Jacob Saylor's in the kick return game was it for me. And I'm kind of caught between, and I'd love to hear where you'll fall on this, just in terms of the big picture. I'm caught in between saying it's very clear and obvious to me that the CTSU team is the best in the league, and they're going to run the table and make the FCS playoffs and be a top-five team in the nation going into the FCS playoffs. I'm caught in between that mind and saying – Yikes, this Sanford team may not end up being all that great this year. They may end up being what they seem to always be, about a 500-league team, going to put up a ton of stats and lose a lot of close games. So this win doesn't actually mean as much as I wish it meant. I don't know which way to go. I would just say ETSU has not won at Sanford yet. You've got one thing kind of monkey off your back. The second one is coming up this week. They've not beaten Wofford. So I think if you can take two of the things you've not done since football back and put that behind you, I think that certainly helps because ETSU has beaten VMI. Now, they've lost to VMI at, at home before, so you got to look at that too. And plus, I'm sure VMI's got that game scheduled. Chattanooga. You know, you haven't went down there, but you, you know, you're going to play twice down there. This will be your third time playing down at Chattanooga. Didn't get to play last year. That's a rivalry game. Got a couple things going. But Sanford always seems to beat Wofford, no matter how good Wofford is. And they always seem to lose to Chattanooga. Chattanooga has their number, no matter where they are. I think Chattanooga's won like five in a row against them. So, like, <clears throat> some things are going to play out where I think Sanford will be four and four. And I guess I said that before. Uh, I think I said that Thursday. They'll probably be 4-4 four and four in the league. It just seems like that's what they're going to be and how they've built their roster and how everything is going to be. And that's not a bad thing. They're going to be a tough out. They're going to go. I think if ETSU can beat Wofford this week and you get two big things, hurdles kind of off your back because football and all sports are about matchups. But ETSU, I think, particularly doesn't have – a great matchup versus Sanford year in and year out because of the problems that they give you with the speed and trying to do things and how Coach Taylor and them, they really want to sub. They use a lot of first and second teamers, more more second teamers than I think most people do. And there's a luxury in that because, you know, again, 
if ETSU didn't have the depth to just say, okay, Jalen Porter, you're going to start the game, okay, Blake Bockworth, you're going to get a lot of snaps, and hey, you guys are going to rotate every other possession. You know, and you see a couple legs come in and spell Donovan Manning for a little bit, and Stephen Scott didn't play as much, but then he has a pass breakup in the end zone. I mean, so there are plenty of things. I think the one thing that did hurt was when Quinn Smith went out because they tried three different guys to try to cover Washington. And in fairness to everyone, that's a tough dude Great to player. cover, especially when they started putting him in motion from the right to the left and then immediately have him drag right back across the field or angle across the field. I think that's just tough for anybody to do, whether you're a starter or you're a non-starter. So, uh, But I think because of the way ETSU just is built and go, that if you were to ask me which team in the league – scares me matchup-wise versus Billy Taylor's defense every year. As of right this second, I would always say I believe it is Samford just because of the style that they play, and that's why they'll win some games. It's also why they'll probably lose some games. But I just feel like that is a tough matchup for Billy Taylor's defense when they play the three backs and, and now Wofford and we'll get into this Thursday, but they actually ran the ball. So they're starting to get back to who they are that's going to be a tougher matchup than if Wofford want to throw the football. And I think for teams that traditionally throw the football, not, again, Sanford's not traditional in any sense in how they play the game. But for teams that traditionally just want to throw the football, I feel like is a good matchup for ETSU. You know, if you get a multiple where Furman, and if Wofford can ever figure out how to do some triple option with throwing the ball, that I could see creeping up as another thing that Billy Taylor have trouble for because they're so multiple. They can do many things. They're 100% balanced. You know, I, I just w- want to wait and see. But I think, to me, this is always a game that I struggle with. And I try not to overreact defensively because I know you look at some numbers. Just like last year, and they go right up down the field. A couple oh, we'll scores, call for those numbers. <laughs> and you're going, oh, my goodness, what, what is ETSU going to do here? But this was about, to me, the offense – showing that, hey, we can win a game. Now, I, I, I know I said if ETSU, you know, can just score 27 points and win a game. <laughs> I think it was 24. But uh, 24. <laughs> uh, I mean, Jiminy Christmas. I, I also said at some point in time, uh, and, I, and I said this on the Vandy broadcast, but at some point in time they're going to give up more than 24, maybe, maybe give up 30, 35, and the ultimate test will – when they give up 35, and I never thought whatever it was, 44 or 8 was coming on the board. But if they gave that up, could the offense win that game? Because I didn't see ETSU giving up 30 points more than one time. And so to answer my own question, because we were driving on the way back, and Robert says, you know, you said there was one game, because he had to remind me. He said, you said there was one game that they were going to struggle in and give up a lot of points, and it would be up the offense. And if the offense won that, you felt like they would – run the table, win the league. And I'm not still saying I feel re- I feel much better after this week's, you know, thinking they can do that. I don't know. I want to go on record yet and saying running the table, not going to lose a game, getting the playoffs, figure out what's going to happen. Because they still got a couple of tough road games with Chattanooga Furman back-to-back weeks, some other things. They still don't beat Wofford. There's a lot of reasons why. But I do feel good about the offense was able to do something they haven't done in a long time, which was – they were able to will you to a victory and carry the defense and give the defense some extra juice late in the game to make the stop when they needed to in overtime. I will absolutely know 
that ATSU is the team that we hope it is after this week because it's not only symbolic against Wofford because this is the one thing ETSU has not been able to do since football has been back. They've won a championship. They've gone to a team. They haven't beaten Wofford. This will be the first 5-0 and start since 1969. Is that right? That's correct. Over 50 years. This would put ETSU in line to be one of the greatest teams in Buccaneer history along with the 69 team and the 96 team. I just don't know if it's that yet with this game because, as you say, it is such a one-off. You're not going to see the Buccaneer defense give up maybe even half of what they gave up to Stanford the rest of the year. This is the most complete offensive performance in every aspect that Buccaneer football has had since football has been back. Again, most points in league play was 45. It took triple overtime to get there against Western Carolina. Most points relation in league play was 38 against Mercer, and it took a single-game rushing record from Quay Holmes to get there. And they had 48 points against an NAI, NAI with only one overtime, 48 regulation, with a strong rushing day, but also an incredible passing day. And just when you thought that the receiving core couldn't get any better, and obviously our standards have been low over the five or six years that football has been back because it's very fair to say, I mean, too, by the way. You're not taking a shot. No, it's very absolutely fair. not. I mean, you've had one receiver go over 500 yards. I'm just going off stats. There's been some solid players, no question, but the passing game has not been up to par. You had one guy go over 500 yards in six seasons, and it was Dalton Ponchill in the first year. It was 509 yards. So I'm not taking shots. I'm not taking shots. But the fact that there's been no progression there over six seasons has been concerning. But you had a career day from your quarterback. You've got Will Huzzy averaging, I think he's up near like 100 yards a game now. And then you have Malik Murray, who just continues to be consistent. And everyone says he has been in terms of not necessarily the statistics that he brings to the wide receiver room, but everything outside of that that he brings to the wide receiver room, his perspective, the fact that he was a leading receiver at an FBS school, just what he can teach in terms of receiving, being a veteran to the other guys. He's been huge. And also is statistically doing fine as well. And then he had Isaiah Wilson in there, who, yes, only had, I think it was two catches, but one of them was that massive 65-yard strike. And we're finally seeing what he can do now with him being healthy for a few games in a row, which has just never really been the case. Uh, It's a complete offensive performance, but it is a one-off outlier game. If ETSU beats Wofford this Saturday, and they have absolutely every reason to do so when you look at the matchup. Every single thing is pointing to Bucks by, for me, a couple of scores. It may not end up being that. I mean, Wofford hung with VMI this past week, and we'll go over that in our third segment. But everything lines up in this game Saturday for ETSU to be able to come out with the win. If they don't, that will tell me some very concerning things. If they do, it's the last thing for them to say, this program has truly arrived. And they don't have any restrictions then. And maybe I'm putting too much on the fact that it's Wofford, right? Just the one team that ETSU hasn't beaten in the SoCon. Maybe I am. But to me, it's that one tangible element that has not fallen into place. And this seems like the year. I will know after this coming week. I just don't know now. I want to know. I just don't. Agreed. I think if ETSU were to win at home against Wofford, I think the narrative will take shape for me and you. Um, Maybe the rest of the Buck Nation, or maybe they're already on board. Let me just say this. I hope so. ETSU started the season with six straight wins in 69 before the tie, Murray State. 
Longest win streak in ETSU history was actually seven games in 1996. And I don't want to bring it up because Robert may listen, but that's when the seven-game win streak was lost to number one Marshall. Um, and then 95, when the Bucks, you know, started uh, 4-0, they lost the fifth game to number three at Appalachian State. So relatively speaking, if you mention some of the, the teams there in 69, there's no rankings because it just at that level – there weren't a whole lot of rankings back then, so at, at least at the FCS level or 1AA back then. So no telling where Murray State was ranked nationally in that situation, but the other two streaks have been broken up by number three and number one. ETSU will take on Wofford, and they will get the luxury of a home game as opposed to road game to try to get this win. Now, they still have a few more wins in a row to talk about the 96 win streak. They certainly have a few more wins to talk about the best starting school history because they need to get this one, get the five. Then they would need to get the Citadel six. Then they would go to, and I think this is poetic, you go to Chattanooga to have the best start in school history and tie the longest win streak in ETSU history. So there would be a lot of juice going into that situation. I, I want to say, too, there's some small things that play out that I think you can't overstate. And I think having Juwan Martin back and a true fullback and where ETSU struggled a little bit last year, even in the same game or, or a couple uh, years ago to score at the goal line. Um, I think having Juwan Martin, I was glad I was able to use his longest career reception. I had that, I've been waiting on that all season. Excellent. Waiting all season to give his career long two yards and another touchdown catch. So I was glad to do that. Also, I can't overstate what a healthy Isaiah Wilson can do because if now that you have Murray, a solid threat on the – outside that can do multiple things. He can go deep. He certainly runs precise routes. Well, Huzzy's catch radius is out of control right now. If you throw it in the zip code, it seems like uh, the bricks are paying off. He's able to make the catch. But one time they actually used Wilson to come in and kick out, block the defensive end, your slot receiver, not only to kick out, but he created a massive hole on a third and one situation where Quay Holmes was able to get six or eight yards. And I don't think you can – you know, just kind of yada yada that. I mean, he's your slot guy. But we've talked about how big and strong he is and how some of the best matchups last year would have been Mercer and BMI, and he was injured, not in place. So if Wilson can stay healthy with everything else, plus Juwan Martin, I think there's some simple little things that are starting to come together. And then Coach Sanders, this will be my last thought on this. This is the second straight week he said, um, you know, we didn't really – well, second – time I've been on broadcast, I should say, because the Vanderbilt game, he said this. Uh, I don't remember. He probably didn't need to do it in the other two games because blowouts. But second tight game, he said, you know what? I went to plays went and repped all week, but they're plays we know. I call them, and the guys know how to run it. And they didn't miss a beat. And now everyone's grasping the offense. And to me, that opens up everything. If you could only focus on 60, 70 plays – and that's your only 60, 70 plays, and things break out, and I'm like, man, I wish we could run this, but you can't run it in the past. And now you can go, hey, I know we haven't ran this in a couple weeks, but we're going to run this play. You guys know what you're doing. And sometimes he gave my heads up on the sideline. Sometimes he just called it. Let's see if they know what they're doing. Everyone knew what they were doing. They made the plays. To me, that is a turning point for an offense. I've got thoughts on that, too. I'm going to save it for Thursday simply because it's more of a big-picture thing in terms of think where the program is at. You said turning point. I completely agree. I think that I'm going to 
it'll take four or five minutes or so. I don't okay. want to do it now. We're already way over. But I'm going to give some more on that Thursday because I as well think that is a huge, huge moment. Um, and, and I want to kind of drag it out towards all of college football, not just ETSU's program, but completely agree. That was a big quote that stood out post game. Okay. Well, with second segment, we've got numbers. Numbers upon numbers upon numbers. After this timeout, Santa's sidekick on Buccaneers Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee Lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you played. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. Breakdown. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. Sandoz and the sidekick. We have ignition. Strap it on, here we go. In your face, all over the place. So I tell you I'm caught between two minds in segment one. And now here in segment two, of course, I'm going to completely shove aside any negative thought that was in my head about this win not meaning as much as it possibly could win for ETSU football and completely embrace the mega positive mind that says Bucks undefeated, top five team in the nation, going to the FCS playoffs, ranked, seeded team going into what will be a national championship culminating season. I'm willing to completely go there, and I'm going to in this segment. In a shocking turn of events, being the optimist on this show, while you will be the pessimist. Let me lead with optimism, because as stated, I don't believe that I'm having to play this role here. But I am happy to do so, because this team deserves it. Let's look individually first on the national stage, and then we'll go to team. I think there's an incredible amount of eye-popping numbers and individual performances so far, obviously. Some that I wasn't even really aware of that were going on consistently enough to be ranked nationally. And then the team rankings are maybe even more crazy. Just in the fact that ETSU is like ranked in almost everything. The breadth of what they've been able to do and the far-reaching effects that they've had not only in the Southern Conference but on the national scene. I'm just at this point saying, forget the SoCon. Let's look national. Because this team is not one that will be a contender in the SOCON, it is one that will, will contend on a national stage. Individually, the FCS leader in rushing yards is Quay Holmes. 536, almost 50 ahead of second place. Second nationally in rushing touchdowns with six, 17th in yards per carry. Again, that was a shocking one to me because we think, and obviously it has been tattooed on my brain for the last, what, three, four months, that Jacob Sailors is the yards per carry king. He is in ETSU's record books right now, but 6.4 yards per carry this year for Quay Holmes. So, really, anyone you put back there, whether it's Sailors or Holmes, is going to get six yards of carry. I mean, what really an unbelievable weapon. Sixth nationally in kick return average is Jacob Sailors. Obviously, the two big ones help that. But unbelievable to think, not only yards per carry king, but now he, in special teams, is one of the best in the nation. Those two also in the top 10 nationally in total touchdowns and top 15 in all-purpose yards. Not breaking news here, but they are as good as it gets at the FCS level. Tyler Rydell, this was a shocker. 12th 
nationally Ooh, let's go, gas baby. efficiency and leading the Southern Let's Hospital. go. This man has arrived. Also 20th nationally in yards per completion and 17th in yards per attempt. This is why that's important. Pass efficiency is going to be kind of an overarching statistic that takes into account a lot of different aspects of a passing game. If you're low in yards per completion, low in yards per attempt, not racking up the yards with the amount of attempts that you're getting, and those numbers are not, what, 13.7 in yards per completion, 8.43 in yards per attempt. If you're lower in those categories, your pass efficiency is going to be lower. But what that tells me, 13.7 yards per completion, 8.43 yards per attempt, which are both obviously very high for any level, that tells me that Tyler Idell is operating with confidence. And Will Huzzy talked about this last week in the press conference. we got one today coming up with Randall Sanders in about two hours. But he discussed the trust that the quarterbacks are showing in the receivers. And for me, outside of perspective, but I think a lot of quarterbacks will tell you this and have a lot more experience playing the quarterback position than myself, that is one of the most difficult things about playing quarterback because, as Coach Sanders said post-game Saturday, you got to take the blame when the team loses, even if you play great. You will get the credit, sure, when the team does well, but if you don't do well and the team wins, people are going to say, oh, well, how much better can the team be if they only had a quarterback? There's no real winning as a quarterback. And so the fact that Tyler Idell has been able to, as someone that is still relatively inexperienced in college football in terms of the playing time that he's gotten, yes, he played the four games, kind of spot duty in his first year, was able to get the red shirt. Then after three games, lost his starting job to Brock Landis in the spring. He's still, it would seem. He's a third-year freshman. Still, as it would seem, you know, literally and figuratively, yes. right? Like, it still would seem that he would be finding himself here. But this man has so much college football ahead of him if he wants to be here for the amount of time that he can. It's beyond my comprehension how good he can be come his true, not even true junior or senior years, his hypothetical junior and senior year years, which would be fifth and sixth years of college football. He is trusting the receivers. He is playing confidently. It is unbelievable to me that he has gone from the man that we saw just, what, I guess two seasons ago that seemed to really play hesitantly and really play reserved and and couldn't do any of those things that he's doing now and wasn't mentally, I think, there to be able to play the position at a high level. And to see him two years later nationally ranked in those three categories is unbelievable. And the command of the offense, I think, is – and that goes to the officiate, goes everything – when a guy's throwing passes before a guy's come out of his break, right, you know everyone's on the same page, right? He's trusting. He knows the read. He's trusting it. He's throwing it. He's now getting quicker with the reads and the release. I think that was the big thing last year. You know, all right, I see the guy open, but I can't quite get rid of him fast enough. And a little bit of that hesitation led to some underthrown balls, led to non not as big plays as they were, you know, there was a game Citadel, I think it was game Mercer. If he just threw it out there when he saw it, and ETSU was probably able to score touchdowns instead, slow up, catch pass. They're nice 30, 40-yard gains, but they're not touchdowns, right? They're not big plays. We saw him take shots, and one shot, I'll say, Will Huzzy, the safety was lost and kind of ran into his path. And instead of kind of running into the safety and could have got a 15-yard penalty, Huzzy actually tried to sidestep him and then go around, and then, and if he would have kept going to straight line, safety wasn't there, he would have been hitting stride and it would have been another 50, 60-yard touchdown. So 
even that pass in which it looks like he overshot Will Huzzy unless you watch sort of what happened on the replay and how Huzzy had to break off the route and kind of go around. And so to me, I would have ran in the guy, flowed my arms, you know, sweet Jesus, and see if I could have got a pass interference call because it seems like you can get that nowadays. So I, I think he's seen the field way better. I think he's making the right decisions. He really threw one ball. I was like, he kind of forced it, but it was a complete, and it wasn't anywhere near intercepted. And I think that's the other sign. He's not really throwing balls into traffic and stuff. He had a couple, Vandy, well, there's two I can think of, but throwing the football away when he needs to. He was able to tuck it and score. I mean, one rushing yeah. touchdown, three, and break a tackle, and then he, yeah. then he kind of juked the guy. So to break a tackle, juke a guy, 5'11", 180, or whatever the heck they list him at, I, I, I think is just showing you that. And then the confidence in the guys, you know, that's another thing. Like when guys start to believe in you that you're going to do it, I think it just changes the whole – dynamic of it and then the offensive line keeping him upright you 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 know his eyes aren't coming down even if there's blitzing you know even late when they were blitzing and the the second pass play was to Nate Atkins and he hit him in the face mask right as he made the turn and he got hit in the mouth but the line they were bringing seven and each issue were blocking six and I mean you know so one guy was going to come free at some point and Quay Holmes in the line picked up everybody you know inside out and so that extra half second before the guy on the outside was able to hit him in the mouth, he was able to throw a dart, and that just shows you, I think, the confidence that he has. And even when he takes that shot and delivers a strike on that last drive, to me, just how that changes everyone's feeling about him. He showed signs in the spring of turning into this quarterback, but there's always the question until you see it, can you get there? And it's incredible to see him so quickly doing that. Elijah Huzzy is sixth in the nation in solo tackles per game at 6.8 as a cornerback, 6.8. Now, does that mean that there's a lot of balls being completed where he has to make a tackle? That's some of it. But he's not only a ball hog that can take the ball away from the opponent, but the fact that he is that high as a cornerback, generally you're going to see that from linebackers, right? But as a cornerback, to come up and make some plays while also making the tackles he needs to in his coverage – that was one that jumped off the page as well. And it also shows that people are not throwing at Karan Lentz. True. People are not wanting to go that side of the field. Because that side of the field, um, you've got Karan Lentz and you've got Mike Price. And if you're going to throw there and if Karan Lentz doesn't intercept it, then you've got Mike Price. And I don't mean it's a negative way, but he's head hunting out there. He's trying to hit somebody. It's terrifying. He, he, he's looking, you know, they, they say football is in the contact sports, collision sport. He's looking for the collision. He wants the car wreck to happen on the field. And so I think that just limits what you do with the football. And so for Elijah Huzzy, I mean, he's got to know if you look at it, and we were we were kind of talking, Robert kind of picked up on it. He was like, if you look at the number of the throws, like they're very rarely looking over the Quran side. And I'm sure – they watched tape, and Karan DeLentz had a big first game as far as pass breakups against Vanderbilt. It was up to task, plus obviously he had the interception. But you start watching him on tape, and, and people are just not throwing Karan DeLentz's way. So Elijah Huzzy, give him credit. They are picking on him, and he's up to the task. Yes. I think I can only think of one time or twice, actually. I can think of twice where he's been burnt, and think about how many balls have been thrown his way. Correct. He, he is a high-level player in every way that you need a cornerback to be. He can catch the ball when there's a mistake. 
he can go and make the tackle when he does give up a completion. And he's had some past breakups that don't turn out to be interceptions where you look and say, <laughs> I mean, that's an FBS and even Power 5 level pass breakup to be able to get in there and contort your body, not be called for interference. He is someone along with Karan Delins, because I've heard people say about Karan Delins, look, if he was two or three inches taller, oh, yeah. this guy is a Power 5 member of a secondary because he obviously has the speed. He obviously has the athleticism, but he would be – Right up there at SEC. And Huzzy almost had the most acrobatic interception of the weekend. I thought he caught it. And then look at it, just kind of when he hit the ground, it kind of popped out. But, you know, they tried to pump and go on the sideline, and he was there and leaped up in the air. Really, I thought, because he was trailing the play, showed again how athletic he is with the vertical leap to go up and kind of take the ball away from what I thought was a sure completion. Not only that, and I thought he intercepted it. Now, it ended up popping out he didn't, but still – it just shows you how athletic really the sec- the secondary we've said it. I can't – there's no – I've watched a lot of FCS so far this season. There's not four guys no. in the country at the FCS level to the four guys that start for ETSU. Tyler Keltner, sixth in the nation in scoring. That's the last one individually, but ho-hum, right? I mean, you, you're never going to give him the amount of credit that you should. Randy Sanders won't, we won't. He did, no, he did give him credit. Well, no, he did. He did, but it was a you know it's good to have him. It was you know, backhanded because yeah, he took a shot exactly, at me too. Exactly, exactly. You know, twenty or thirty seconds, which is not enough to spend on how consistent, how clutch. I mean, he walked out there for that field goal when it was forty-eight, forty-five. You needed it, and I don't think anyone that has watched this team or been around this team was nervous at all. True freshman holder too. Let's go over that. Fourth string quarterback, true freshman. He he was playing. He, he was playing. He's from Ottawa. He's playing Red Bank last year. And he's asked in an overtime game, in a Southern Conference game, people went straight to live to put it down. To me, that's impressive, too, because that, you know, it's one thing to go out there, Bandy, first game, and ETSU's kind of rolling, you know, and they're leaving. This was the first test, and, and we didn't talk about it a lot on air because I, you know, I believe in the broadcaster's jinx. I don't want to bring it up there, but I'm sitting there going, Haynes Eller last year was literally playing Red Bank and Science Hill High School. And then he's asked in the, the FCS, you know, nationally ranked game on the road to extend a win streak to do something mundane that people don't think about until it goes bad, right? It's one of those things you don't think about the snap. You don't think about the holder. You never say their name until something goes wrong. But that's the other part of the equation. If you're giving Hayden Zeller this kind of attention, then we're going to have to do like a full segment of Tyler Keller at some point. Uh, As a team, ETSU 15th nationally and third down conversion percentage. Obviously, that's huge. 47%. They haven't been above 40%. And and they struggled in this last game in third down or it would be even better. Haven't been up uh, above 40% in a year, and they're at 47% right now. 18th and 4th down conversion percentage. 15th and 4th down conversion percentage defense. 12th nationally in first downs with 88. Four fumble recoveries is 17th nationally. 15th nationally in interceptions. 19th in the red zone at 95%. And you made a good point in the broadcast that one non-conversion in the red zone was at the end of, I believe it was the UVA Wise game, or was it the Delaware State game, where they got down to like the five. Right, and then Tom just ran out. Game ended. So at that point, that was a choice. Tenth in the nation in both rushing and uh, defense and offense. Just a half sack allowed per game. That's fifth in the country. Two all year. 14 tackles for a loss allowed, just seventh in the country. So make sure to give the offensive line some credit, too. We know that they're paving the way for this great running game, but they're also not allowing those plays that set you back, which is so huge. 14th in the country in sacks. 
at 3.25 per game for the Buccaneer defense. 18th in the country in scoring defense, 12th in scoring offense. They're top 20 in both scoring offense and scoring defense. 17th in the country in time of possession at 33 minutes plus. 13th in the country in total offense, 455.5 per game. Nine turnovers forced is 12th in the land. You look up and down that list, there's not really a sector, an avenue of the game where ETSU isn't represented. It's incredible. I had to look up because I didn't realize ETSU finished 50% on third down. They were four for four in the fourth quarter. So they were two of eight. So they ended up 50%. Clutch factor. I was sitting there going, well, that number's even brought down, but it wasn't. It, It actually rose. Because ETSU was four for four. Well, there's the optimism, Jay Sandos. Go ahead and ruin my party. Ruin my party, Jay Sandos. All right, here's just numbers and facts, right? Oh, yeah, sure. The old pass pass attempt record at ETSU, giving up a pass attempt 66 VMI 2019, and Sanford threw 73. So that's a new record. Most completions, actually, the Bucs gave up 43 pass completions to Kentucky Wesleyan in 2015. That was smashed. They gave up 56 completions to Samford this year. Most passing yards given up. The playoff loss at Montana Montana in a snowstorm. They gave up in 1996, 467. Samford with a SOCON record, 582. Total offense, most given up, 1999. The first of two national championship years for Georgia Southern, 685. ETSU gave up 728 to Samford. Offensive plays, 95. 1990 VMI. I would not have guessed that, the 1990 VMI team would have had 95 plays. But 111 for Sanford. The old record for first downs given up, ETSU 32. The new record now 38. All that to say, Liam Welch has now broke the SOCON single-game passing record back-to-back seasons, and he's 0-2. He also broke the SOCON total offense single-game record with 655, and again a loss. They now have played seven overtime games since 2019, and you talked to Coach Hatcher before this. Seven overtime games. They are one in six. Out of the seven games, six have happened in league play. If you are a Bulldog fan, how gut-wrenching is this? And then the weird flex, and I sent this to you, the Sanford Bulldog you know, football page is basically touting the records, and I, I'm not anti-touting records, especially a, a loss. You know, you got to spin a positive. But then they do some emoji where, like, the, the guy's, like, blowing steam out of his nose or, like, how tough they are. And they're like, hack attack, and here we are. And I'm like, calm down, people. Calm down. Why in the world is that your – like, I get it. Hey, he broke the record. Let's go. I don't even know if I would have did it right after the game. I think, you know, the next day you're like, oh, by the way, here, you know. It's it's. I've said this, and I'll say it again. Coach Hatcher, he writes all these books, and you read the media guide. It is not about conference championships. It's not about anything else. Like the seven pages of it is about the offense and the records and all this other stuff, and that is all they're concerned about. And they had a great crowd, unbelievable, 6,300 or so. It was the most fans I had ever seen. They were still in the first quarter, people lined up in a parking lot to get in. I don't know if they weren't ready for it or there's just one gate or whatever, but they were a long time on family weekend. They dedicated the field to Bobby Bowden. That was one of the best halftime dedications of video production work they did for that and found old school interviews with Bobby Bowden 
touting wherever else he's coached, West Virginia, Florida State, Sanford, what Sanford meant to him, what coaching meant to him. You know, his wife of 71 years was on the field with his kids. It was unbelievably done. It was a great atmosphere. They have fraternity row basically in the one end zone. They have it set up for extra, like, lineman practice and, you know, the sleds and all that's down there where they set up tents and everything for the fraternities and sororities and student life groups. And they were all standing on that fence, at the end, which I've never seen anybody down there before. They brought in food trucks or people on the hill sitting down, which is unheard of. I mean, the atmosphere was as good as I've seen. If, I mean, we talked to Coach Sanders actually about it after the game we were off air, and he was like, man, if, you know, if they could get this type of support, like, I mean, this would be unbelievable because the campus is beautiful. The weather's always great, except for when we play football there. This is the first time in four tries it hadn't been pouring down rain on ETSU. But normally it's great weather, great facilities, good school, everything there. That being said, I still don't understand why they still tout Offensive wins. Do you have any more negativity to spew about our defensive performance, Sanford fan? Honestly, A.J. Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a guy. I love Wes Miller. I just want to say, I read all that to say that they still can't get it done. <laughs> that was my point. I read all of the stuff that they were able to break and set and do and soak on records and everything else. But when they set records, they're 0-2. So, again, it begs the question, why does that matter? Great. I don't understand. Okay. You, know, you know who else I don't understand? Who? Josh Cochran. Can we talk about him next? Sure. Because I'm a big fan now. Really? Yeah. Santa Sackett, but Miss Personality. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Seconds left. 
Wofford stalls out at midfield. BMI wins, improving to 3-1 on the year. Wofford continues to sputter. Haven't scored more than 24 points in a game this year. They dropped to 1-2. But all of a sudden, you're a Josh Kaplan fan, even though they're 1-2. Is it because they're coming off a loss in the William B. Green Junior State? 53 rush attempts for 256. They had two plays that were negative the entire game. So that is Wofford football, and that's what's going to get them. Yes, now, I'll say this, too. It was 14-14. We were in the pregame show listening to, um, I don't remember if it was the coaches coordinators at that point or Randy Sanders, but I think there was 30 seconds left to go in a half, fourth and two, BMI's four-yard line. And Wofford went for it, and I loved it. And that's exact. That's the tone I think Wofford has. That's the mentality they have. Don't kick a field goal there. We're going to get two yards. And in fairness, they averaged right at five yards to carry. So everything pointed to run the football. They gave Herb Mulligan 20 attempts, 134 yards. Jimmy Warwick, who is the running quarterback, 11 carries, 52. Broussard, 12 for 41. Now, Nathan Walker shocked me because usually – He's sort of the bigger guy, but he, he just had 29 yards on 10 carries. But 53 carries, 256. That's the formula. There were a couple of plays that, honestly, BMI had not been very good against the run that made big plays in short yard situation. And to me, if Wofford keeps running the football where they were trying to throw the football, eventually that offensive line will turn back into the road graders. Now, my hope is it's another week after this one. That, 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 that's the hope, but for Wofford football, I, that's your formula to win. If Jimmy Warwick throws 19 times, I, I think it's still a bit too much, but if he throws 15 times and you run 50 to 60 times, there you go. Uh, I think it's – and it wasn't really the getting up and down the field. It was the timely of turnover on downs on the fourth down. There was the interception. I think there was a fumble as well. Uh, on a drive. So those three things kind of hurt. But, I mean, you look at 375 yards of total offense. They outgained them. They held the ball for almost 36 minutes against VMI. They were 8 of 16 on third down, 2 of 4 on fourth down. I mean, that, that is Wofford's football. They were 3 of 5 in the red zone. That's what that's what hurt uh, for the Terrier. But, to me, Josh Conklin has, again, now I think it's taken him too long to figure it out because I think he could have probably – uh, been more competitive against Kennesaw State. Now, they get to win against Elon, and because that was on Flow Sports, and I refuse to pay Flow Sports <laughs> twenty nine ninety nine a month to, wa- oh. to watch a game. Ah. I'm not going to be able to watch that. I've, I've just had to read the stats of it, but I've not been able to watch that game. I would love to watch that game and see sort of how that played out. But to me, that's how Wofford's defense will get better, too, because, again, they're only going to play 25 minutes. So, um, I'll say if Wofford wants to run the ball, he wants to run the ball. could be the fastest game that we have uh, in Wimberley Green Junior Stadium. And so for VMI, I think Colin Einstein did a great job. I mean, they didn't ask a lot out of him. 18-22, though, pretty impressive. Uh, you know, I, I think he did his deal. They only had 319 yards, but they didn't have the ball a lot. I mean, I think that was the thing was they had a couple drives stall out, and you, you look up and the quarter's over, and they didn't have the ball again. So I think that was interesting. But VMI offensively, it's still pretty darn good. I think defensively they've still got some holes to fill and they need some help. And Wofford did that by not converting a couple fours, an interception, a fumble. But I think the Terriers, if they continue to go with a run game, are going to be much better off. Corey Britty 
And he was talking about this game without talking about him. 172 and two scores. He was absolutely fantastic. And, again, this offense for VMI is kind of showing some diversity, right? They're maybe taking some off the plate of a less experienced quarterback in Ironside. Maybe they give more to Morgan. Obviously, they have Jacob Harris outside. But that running game is coming along as well. Mercer and Furman. Gave Mercer some credit on the show Holy last cow. week. And this was being written as an easy win for Furman by most. And I think we agreed to a point. Also caution, though, that the Bears are not going to be an easy out this year and perhaps – they have even a bit more than we thought. 24-3, to a dominating performance in every facet of the game over Furman. Poor Brad Stone. He asked to bring this segment back. And be careful what you wish for because Furman obviously did not have a great week. Uh, Furman gets the first three points of the day and then did not score again. And this was another case of a team going with a quarterback that didn't start the year but has played better than the man that did and getting an opportunity. Carter Peavy was a QB for the Bears, didn't play well at the outset. Fred Payton came on to throw two touchdowns against Alabama, and he goes the distance against Furman. Not necessarily a clean and polished performance, but gave his team a chance. 168 yards, touchdown, and a pick. Perhaps more importantly, Fred Davis and Brandon Marshall led a running attack that racked up 223 yards. Meanwhile, all is not well at the quarterback position in Greenville. Hamp Sisson throws three interceptions, is lifted for Jace Wilson, who proceeds to throw a fourth. First time Furman goes without a touchdown since 2015, and the last time they played Mercer in Greenville, they rushed for 410 yards. This time around, just two seasons later, 91 rushing yards. 410 to 91 in two seasons. Devin Wynn got 11 carries. Um, Clay Hendricks, you're, you're an Air Force guy. You, you believe all, he's got to get more carries. I don't care if he has 39 yards. He needs more carries. Just like early in the game, right? You look at the yards per carry for Quay Holmes, and I did, you know, driving home, we watched the ESPN Plus replay just to watch the fourth quarter in overtime because there were things we were having to rewind. Like, man, I don't remember. Like, when you're calling a game, you know this, Mike, it, sometimes, you know, you're so engulfed in, in that that you don't remember certain things, even if you remember it. And so we were watching that, listening, and they were touting, but cautiously, like, you know, Right now, Quay Holmes, you know, they've kind of kept him in check, and there you go. And all of a sudden, you know, he rips off a 19-yarder here, a 41-yarder there, a you know 13-yarder there, and he just starts going at it. And that's because ETSU stays committed to the offense. And Furman, I know they had switched the offense, and they had done a lot for Hampson in the past game. And if you ask Furman, and they have their druthers, they want to run it for 200 and throw for 300, right, like everybody. They want 500-yard solo offense. If you ask Randy Sanders that, he'd be more 250-250. But, yes, that's sort of the game plan, and that's how they've sort of built up everything. But, and, you know, they threw 37 passes, 32 rushes. To me, it needs – and I know they've done a lot with Hampson in the past game, and it had worked out well until this one. And Hampson, the first couple interceptions were not very good. A lot of overthrows, missing guys, did not look – for whatever reason, did not look comfortable. I have watched – the other games, and he had looked brilliant and very commanding and putting passes on the mark. He missed a lot of guys. And a couple, I think, he tried to force plays. The the one, I think, the second interception where they had the ball near midfield and it, and it gets picked off at the two-yard line, and he overshot the guy by about seven yards, I think was, again, pressing. Like Mercer just come down the field and scored. 7-3, you're trying to make some play, just chunk it. So, very unlike Hamp Sisson. Now, Jace Wilson, not only did he throw 12 times in an interception 60 yards, but he also carried the ball um, six different times, too. Picked up 15. Now, he did have 
one big sack, which took a lot of yards away. I think he had a 12-yard loss on the sack. So that got eaten up. But kind of running the football, he was able to do so. Consistent is not much of a runner as far as that goes. But I thought Mercer did a great job defensively. I mean, Ron DeLuca has two catches. I mean, Ron Miller had seven catches but only 55 yards, and he's usually the guy that leads the league in you know, yards per catch because he'll catch his 52-yard hot passes that nobody's looking out for him. So I think Hemp Sisson, you know, will probably bounce back and this chalk this. I, I think this is an outlier for Furman in their offense, just to be honest. And then let me flip and say, I thought Furman would win maybe because they got hammered last year, and that was something that they got hammered the last two games of the year, the Mercer Citadel, and they were probably going to hammer both those teams. And then I thought, you know, they'd probably lose a couple somewhere, whether it's to ETSU, Chad, or Sanford. But I, I thought they would beat Mercer and Citadel if I had to, like, pick the schedule early and circle wins and losses. And Fred Payton didn't have to do a lot. 10 of 20, 168 yards and a touchdown. And – 45 carries, 223 yards. It was the turnovers that really were the difference in this. And I thought Coach Conklin just was like, all right, they're going to turn it over. We're just going to keep doing this. And Coach Conklin. You got him coaching multiple teams now? Oh, sorry. Well, I wish. I wish. Chronic. Yeah, you do. The Chronic. The Chronic closed the spring season with four wins and five attempts. Now they've won two of their first three. So I'm doing the quick math. That's six of their last eight they've won. And in fairness, I think you take Alabama off the board if you really want to. If you really, really want, and I'm taking point off the board too. And take take point off the board. Take uh, Alabama off the board. If you want to go just like opponents, I mean that's a pretty impressive record. Those are all SoCon games, right? Uh, Yeah, I suppose so. Because the only non-conference were point in Alabama. They only played two non-conference. Yeah, that's true. So I, I know they played in the. Fall, but you're counting the spring as far as that. That's right. right. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. Okay. Four of the last five in the spring, and it's all yeah. I guess five of their last six in the SoCon. Yeah. So I, to me, that's that's impressive for Coach Chronic what he's been able to do. Um, it's I, I thought Mercer. I learned more about Mercer in this game. I I think Hamp Sisson just just had a day that I think he needs to go get whatever they do where you get the football and you deflate it and you bury it or you do whatever. You just do that and you move on if you're firm and. And just go back to work and just chalk it up. I, I think for that one, I'm pretty sure Sunday's film session on some of those interceptions didn't go well. Uh, I'm sure George Corals had lot, lots and lots of conversations with Hamp about just sticking with the offense, taking what they give you, doing the right stuff. Um, I'm not ready to punt on Furman, um, especially if Sisson can bounce back the next game. But certainly I think Mercer, who was in that middle pack, not sure where to put him, maybe took a little bit of a step forward because Farmer's not an easy place to go win. We do hope to bring our guy Brad Stone better news in the near future. That's right. Western Carolina and Gardner-Webb, not as much intrigue here, obviously, because only one SoCon team involved instead of two, but there were some rather large storylines entering the game on both sides. Were the running Bulldogs going to live up to their billing as a team that should be on the fringe of the top 25 as they are in the coaches' poll? And was Western going to be able to continue their strong offensive start and pull what would have been, at least I think, a pretty big road upset. The answers for the Catamounts were mixed. Offense looked good, but defense couldn't match. Gardner-Webb, 52. Western Carolina, 34. Catamounts actually had a 27-17 lead early in the third quarter after Rogan Wells had maybe the longest run we'll see out of a SoCon quarterback this year. 82 yards for the score at the beginning of the half, but Western proceeded to simply fall apart. Gave up 35 of the final 42 points to Gardner-Webb. Scored 28 to the run of Bulldogs in the third quarter. They come away with the win. Well, statistically, unbelievable day 
427 yards through the air, 113 on the ground, so 540 total. Of course, Liam Welch went over 600 against the Bucks, so somehow Wells doesn't even have the high mark in the league on the weekend. But those two have something in common, Jay, that being that their big stats do not translate to a win. We pay a lot of attention to the quarterback position because, obviously, it's the most important position in sports, undisputed fact. But this shows yet again it is not everything. If you cannot play defense, you are still not guaranteed to come out with a win, regardless of what your quarterbacks can put up statistically. And this is where I think Western Carolina will take a little bit of step back next year. My guess, year three, they, they probably got a great shot to be competitive. He's a graduate transfer. Only your Rogan Wells is going to be there. And this is a genius, I think, sort of play by Kerwin Bell, too. I get a guy that knows everything on my offense, knows how to run it, knows what to do. He's trying to change some other things, personnel, and he just doesn't have everybody in and everything that you want to have in. And so offensively, he's carrying the load. I mean, there were a lot of people like, hey, man, you think Rodell's going to win the player of the week? And I'm like, he might have the fourth best statistics in the league <laughs> right. as a quarterback, unfortunately. And you look at Wells, I mean, you run for 113 and a touchdown. He threw for 427. I know he threw a couple picks. But still, you look at him just kind of wearing the cape and carrying, you know, the flag for the catamounts. It, it's impressive. And then defensively, you know, it's kind of going to be the – the deal for West Carolina, they've had a, a hard time stopping the run. We saw Sanford don't like to run the ball, have great success running the ball. Gardner-Webb chunks off 291 on the ground on 40 carries, averaging seven yards a carry. So certainly I think there's some stuff to shore up on the defensive end. But offensively, if West Carolina can force a few turnovers, then honestly I think Western Carolina offensively could, could create some matchup problems for some folks. They run 99 plays, outgained Gardner-Webb 650 to 552, outpossessed their Saturday opponent 35 to 25 in terms of minutes, but only go four for seven in the red zone, turn it over three times. One of those a pick six, those situational and game-changing type stats still more important, it would seem, in gaining victory than the sexiness, shall we say, of the yards and stats. Speaking of sexy, my bold predictions were not that over the weekend, unfortunately. I almost retired the segment. Did you? Almost. At this point, I might want to. Shohei Otani has taken MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a position player. The Brooklyn Nets are whole. They are done. If they were committed, if they put in that work, you'd be in the Eastern Conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets are whole watching a playoff with the rest of us. JaVale McGee has been added to the Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. JaVale McGee. Damari Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. A 6'6", 225-pound, three-star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. But Jay is my teammate. He stepped up with the 17 green to our left, the 18th tee, 45 yards away. Jay proceeds to hit from the 18th tee to the 17th green and into the 17th bucket. keeping score at that point, but let's go over my great greatness. Firstly, I don't know how bold it was to say Arkansas over Texas A&M. What was the line? Texas A&M was what, like three or four point dog? 
They were a five-point favorite. I'm going to have to uh, – Arkansas? No, Texas A&M was a five-point favorite. And a, that's a neutral site game, by the way. It was played in Dallas. Okay, fair. That was played yeah, in Dallas. Fair. That was okay. not at Arkansas. Five – I don't know, five points. I'm going to have to start keeping a closer eye on how bold these bold predictions are for you. Uh, it was bold to say North Carolina State would be Clemson. And my goodness. Like that. Like that call. When that field goal was wide at the end of – was it regulation? I don't know. I was doing another game. I believe it was regulation. Actually, we were driving home at that time. I don't know. I don't and – it was why. Oh, no, it was a 330 game. I don't know what happened. To win, I was like. In fairness, I didn't realize after, it was well after we had got in the van, you know, an hour and a half after ETSU's game ended that I even knew North Carolina State won. I didn't even know that that had happened. I do not want to hear your excuses. I was so locked in. All I know is W. Uh, where was that missed field goal? I don't know. Oh, there it was. 14, was it 14-14? Anyway, uh, I there was a missed field goal. It was late, and oh dear, it was just looking as if that was going to cost North Carolina State. And then they go and win it in overtime, 27 to 21. You had the Bucks putting out more than 30 points, which you drastically undershot. Yes. Which I'm not sure either was what I thought going. Right. I, I, they they got that in the fourth quarter in overtime. And then you had a pretty much two scores needed both. Yes. You only I thought 30 wasn't bold enough, so I needed to go somewhere else. Cowboy up and go play ball.